We are in a teaching series um, on the stories that Jesus told. We're paying attention to Luke, who um, has a particular interest in Jesus' parables and tells about more of them than the other uh, writers of the Gospels do. And uh, as we did looking in the Gospel of John, uh, when John told us all of the ways that Jesus introduced himself by saying, I am, um, we're wondering what it is that Luke wants us to get from the story. So from John, we think we got from his I am statements that Jesus was just making very plain and clear and ordinary what it was like to have a relationship with him. So over against the thousands of rules of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, Jesus gave simple teaching and said, if you have a relationship with me, if you follow me, it's just like this. And it was beautiful, each of the images that he gave them in his I am statements. Well, today we're going to listen to Luke and uh, consider another one of the stories that he told uh, that he remembered Jesus telling. And so that we can get our heads around where I, I think we ought to go with this is, um, let me ask you this question. What could change in your life that would change everything? What, what could happen that would make a difference universally in your life. So just ponder that, because I think um, in these first two stories that we hear from Luke, um, I think he talks about two things that change everything. And so we're, we're going to get to the story that talks about that. L let me um, tell you a story that is not true. Okay, so I, I should at least fess up, right? There was a new monk who came to a monastery, and uh, as was the practice and habit of the brothers in the monastery, he was assigned a copying job, because that was what was to take place morning till night. Uh, there were these manuscripts aplenty in the basement of the monastery, and they needed to be copied, because the copies that they had were getting more and more worn. And so this monk sat down at the desk, and then he thought to himself, he noticed that all of the other monks were simply copying the copies that they had. And it, he was sort of naive, but also a little bit idealistic. So he went to, to the head monk, the abbot, or whatever he would have been, and said, do we have the originals down in the archives? And the abbot said, yes, well, we do. And the monk said, well, if we're just copying copies, you know, maybe it'd be better if we could st start with the, the original documents. And could I go down and unearth one of those manuscripts, and, and would you let me copy that? So new monk, he was a little wet behind the ears, so the, the abbot said, that's fine, just go ahead and do it. So later on that day, the monk is busy at work when all of a sudden he just shouts, oh no, you've got to be kidding me. And there was a quiet descended, even a denser quiet than was the, the studious library feeling in the room. And he said, celebrate. It's celebrate. not celibate. <laughs> that changes everything, <laughs> right? It's not a true story. Don't go telling people that it's a true story. Don't tell your Catholic friends it's a true story, okay? 
changes everything. Here's the story that Jesus told. And this is from the message version. Um, Keep your shirts on. Keep the lights on. Be like house servants waiting for their master to come back from his honeymoon, awake and ready to open the door when he arrives and knocks. Lucky the servants whom the master finds on watch. He'll put on an apron, sit them at the table, and serve them a meal, sharing his wedding feast with them. It doesn't matter what time of night he arrives, they're awake and so blessed. What is that a story about? The parables are not uh, intricate, detailed narratives. They're not to be worried down to every little meaning. There's usually one or two themes that are surfaced in a story. Usually one lesson, maybe two lessons that are taught. And this story, along with about five other parables, tells a very simple story. It's the simple story of readiness, of watchfulness. So Jesus says, here's, here's the scenario. Um, and in, in the day and culture, they would have immediately envisioned what he was suggesting, um, where there would be walled, um, sort of compound-like homes for those that were wealthy landowners. And he says, imagine that one of the owners, one of the masters of these walled compounds, was off at his own wedding feast, or at another wedding feast, And he comes home, and to his delight, the watchman is fully dressed and fully alert. And even though it is the middle of the night, the watchman sees him coming, opens the gate, welcomes him in, and he said, and here the the disciples would have been surprised at the turn in the story. He said, and what happened then, and they'd be thinking, yeah, what happened then was that they finally could go to bed because the master was told them they could lock the gate and everything was good. He, He said, no, what happened then? was that the master said, good for you. And because you've been alert, because you've been watchful, because you're ready, sit down. Let me bring you some of the bounty of the feast. And he sets a meal before them. And the disciples and those that were listening would have had a little bit of a head scratch and say, well, that's a very unusual turn of the story. The the beginning of it was so uh, typical and predictable, but what happened at the second part of the story is not typical or predictable at all. I, I'm, I'm sure many of you have been places where, where compounds um, or walled houses are just the necessity because of security and safety. Um, I've been in, in several places where I've stayed inside uh, these compounds and you get to realize that the key player is the watchman, is the person at the gate. Uh, That person usually has a gun, which terrifies me as a Canadian coming and looking at this sort of thing. But later when you realize that all around there may be robbers who would love to break into that compound, who would love to get what they're sure is in there, then you are very appreciative of the person that watches at the gate. The Mahima home, for example, is a gated community. The reason for that is that those dear little girls who have been rescued need to know that they are completely, completely safe. And the keeper of the Mahima homes is the watchman at the gate. And I remember the many times as we would arrive there, he did not just swing open the gate. He came and he looked inside the van in which we were traveling. 
he made sure he could tell who each person was in there because he wasn't going to let anyone inside the Mahima home that was not known. Um, and his role was a vital, vital role. So it is all over the place. Jesus said, here's the situation. Man comes home, and the watchman has been doing his job. Hmm. So as he goes on and talks about this more, and we're going to leave it at that part of the chapter today, but we'll be back later on. Peter says to him, um, is this story for us or for other people? And, you know, we, we know the parables of Jesus now fairly familiarly, but in the day that Jesus was telling the stories, most people didn't get them. And I don't know how we understand that because we kind of do get them, or at least we've been, had them explained to us. But Peter says, who are you talking to this time? Because we get kind of baffled. You know, you've, we've had this little chat where you say that you tell stories so people won't understand. And we don't get that you tell stories so people won't understand. And we know that sometimes you have said to us, you have told stories that people won't understand, but that we will understand because you will explain them to us and that it's for others to understand later on somehow when they get on the inside or something. So, so Peter says, who's this story for? And Jesus goes on and he, he gets really stern and he says, when the watchman doesn't do his job, when people don't do their job, they deserve a beating, at least in the culture and setting of, of the stories. So it, it turns into a sort of a severe story, but still playing out this, this single theme, the theme of readiness. Celebrate would change everything. I think what Jesus wants us to know is that there are two things that change everything in terms of our relationship with him. And the first thing that we talked about last Sunday was our mortality. Everything changes when we deal with our mortality, when we face the fact that we are dying and we will die and do die. Story of the rich farmer. Great business plan. There was nothing wrong with his business plan except he forgot that he would die. And so nobody lives a meaningful life without square-facing their mortality and realizing that the day will come when they will be put in a casket or they will be put in an urn and they will be no more. So we talked about the wisdom of living a life with our mortality in view of everything that we plan and everything that we do. The second thing that I think we need to understand that would change everything quite frankly, is Jesus' return. So I grew up in an evangelical context in which I heard preaching mostly from my dad almost every Sunday about the return of Christ. It's what he loved to talk about. In fact, I could probably parrot some of his sermons. He had this one sermon where he, when he would start saying it, I would sort of put my head down because, you know, I was a pastor's kid, thoroughly embarrassed to be a pastor's kid. I grew up in Northern Ireland, and I went to school away from home, so nobody knew I was a Christian. That was, that was my deal. And my dad was not a pastor. Then we moved to Canada, and my dad became a pastor, and the church was down the street from my school. And I was outed, right? So being a pastor's kid was not a thrill for me. I don't know very many pastor's kids for whom it is a thrill. 
Um, and my dad would preach these sermons, and he was so predictable. And the, the, the problem is that God actually used his sermons to get me, which is, is an irony. So I remember being at the altar at the end of one of my dad's sermons thinking, I didn't, I don't know how I got here. Right? So he had this one sermon. Not only are we living in the last days, we're living in the last of the last days. And every time he'd say, oh, man. That is so corny. That is so corny. What do you mean we're living in the last of the last days? But Sunday after Sunday after Sunday through the 70s, all we heard about was the coming of Christ. We don't hear anything about the coming of Christ. You, you know, I, I dare say, and this I'm way out on the limb here, I dare say none of us woke up this morning wondering if Jesus would come back today. If you did, a plus, you pass this sermon, right? <laughs> but it is something that is not, it's, it's gotten off our radar. And yet here are these parables in which Jesus is really stern. He's really positive and reaffirming and, and delighted with those who are ready, who are expecting the return of the bridegroom, of the homeowner, of the business you know, uh, supervisor, all of, he's pleased when they do well, but he's very stern about those who were not ready, who weren't watching, and who were otherwise engaged. So later in this chapter, we'll see that he says, if while you know the master is coming back, and you're off doing things that you know have no business in your life, you're in for a beating when the master comes back in the day and culture in which he's telling the story. My mortality and the front-of-mind commitment that Jesus Christ is returning, and he's returning soon, would change everything, I'm pretty sure. I know that when I give no thought to my mortality, I can go off in the wrong direction. I know that as I have let the imminence, is a theological term, of the coming of Jesus, of the return of Jesus, the, the more I have let that slip my mind, the less I am living a wise life. I am not as ready as I ought to be. I am not the watchman who still has his shirt on and is still wide awake because I've been lulled to sleep by the same thing that has lulled many to sleep, which is, he's not back yet. And anyway... Nobody can agree on how it is he will come back, when he will come back, and how you would even know. So let's get on to other things, more important things, more practical things. All the while, Jesus has these stories that kind of float into the future from his telling. And he says, if you're a watchman, and you are, your job is to be fully awake, fully clothed, fully ready. So that would change everything, I think. If I honestly began every morning by saying, perhaps today, I know there, were, there are things that I would not do, there are things that I would do. All of, I'd, I'd set everything into correct order if I was saying, perhaps today. My, my grandfather was a guy who finished every sentence, at least as I recall, with DV. Do you remember that? It's long gone, right? But I would say, see you tomorrow, DV. I, when Anna Beth met him, I think she said, 
what in the world does DV mean that your grand is always saying? DV what? Deo Valente, which means God willing, which was my grandfather's commitment to saying that nothing happens except that it's God's will. That God's the one who manages our calendars. So I can say I will do this tomorrow, but I have to say God willing, I'll do this tomorrow. The Lord willing, I will do this tomorrow. It's the same sort of a notion that says, if the Lord tarries... And again, that's a a little phrase that we used to hear often. Um, Next year, DV, if the Lord tarries. Now, there's a double spirituality right there. It's God's will, and if he tarries, then we'll do thus and so. Do I think that way at all? That perhaps next week, the things I'm planning to do, I won't get to do, either because the Grim Reaper will come and knock on my bedroom door, or Jesus will return. So later on, um, we get to the Apostle Paul. And here's just a a little primer on how we relate the rest of the scripture to what we're doing, which is focusing on Jesus. So I'm claiming that the most important thing for us to do is go to Jesus, the historic person of Jesus, to discover that the historic Jesus is not a different person than the Jesus of faith. It's the same person. We haven't concocted a Jesus who was not historically factual, but the historic Jesus is the Jesus of faith. He's the one we believe in. And so I am more convinced than ever that landing on Jesus and forming my life and my beliefs around who he was, what he did, what he said, is critical. Everything else in the Bible is also of great importance. But everything else in the Bible needs to be understood through the filter or the screen of Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And you can wrestle with some of the discrepancies that you think of or the conundrums or the wonderings in the Old Testament. If you don't bring Jesus back, you won't understand what they are. So Jesus said to the Pharisees, you spend your time studying the scriptures, but they're about me. And you haven't found that yet. They're about me. So we will spend time going back to the Old Testament and seeing how that they are about Jesus. For example, sometime we'll do a study on the tabernacle and understand that that is not some just antiquated religious approach to things in the middle of the wilderness. Every single thing has Jesus imprinted on it. It's all about Jesus. Similarly, when we go forward in the New Testament, and we get to Paul, or we get to James, or we get to John, we will find out that what they are doing is going back to Jesus, remembering what he taught, and putting flesh on that, building doctrine on that, saying this is how you must live your life, and we will see that what Paul says in this particular passage is that this comes from the master. I'm going to tell you something, says Paul. I'm going to tell you this because the master himself said so. So here's Paul's theology of the readiness that Jesus expects in the parable. He says, we can tell you with complete confidence, we have the master's word on it, that when the master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The master himself will give the command. Archangel thunder. God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. 
Then the rest of us who are still alive at that time will be caught up with them into the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be only one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. Paul spends a lot of time on this. There are lots of other passages where he says, get this right, that Jesus is returning. And for the early Christians, the biggest dilemma they had was to try to understand why he wasn't back yet. Um, And here, there are these Corinthians who are saying, people have died. Like, do do you get this, Master Paul? Um, Because Jesus said he would come back, but he didn't come back. And people have died. So how, what gives? And he says, oh, don't worry about that. Those that have fallen asleep, they're not going to be forgotten. But he says, mark my words, the master told, this, told us this himself. He is coming back. And when he comes back, here's the way it's going to play out. So Paul's hope, Paul's daily um, conscious attention and behavior is about the coming of Christ. It changes everything for him. Rooted back to the truth about the historic Jesus who was the Jesus of faith whom he says he met differently than those who met him in the flesh. He met him in this encounter, this blinding light on the Damascus Road. But he says, founded on who this was and what we know he did, the most important thing now is to realize he's coming back. And don't get disturbed when people die ahead of his coming back because they won't be forgotten. So for many of us, the comfort of Christianity is this precise comfort. I I do lots of funerals. Um, I love doing funerals. That's about as morbid as thinking that celebrate is an important idea this morning, right? But you know what I love about them? It's just, it's right there. There's no point talking about the World Cup or hockey or anything else because mortality is right there in people's faces. And when in funerals people do the silly things that they do, like make up these lovely little stories about God needing a new flower in his garden, I like gardeners and I like gardens, but I don't think God needs new flowers in his garden. There's a much more powerful answer to mortality than that. God doesn't need another angel. He actually doesn't put a new star in the sky that is actually your mom. So I, I, I don't try to debunk that in the service. It's not my job to be the grouch that came in and said, even though we are sending balloons up to the stars, um, That guy says that's not very important, what's important to us. Here's what is important and powerful. Is that because of what Jesus did, we don't have to die. Remember the the one encounter with, with the Pharisees? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die. And if he dies, he will live again. Hey, Mary and Martha, do you believe this? Yes, we believe this. What do you mean you're the resurrection and the life? Our father Abraham's dead. And Jesus says, well, actually, he saw my day and he was glad. They say, who saw your day and was glad? You don't know Abraham. You're not even 50 and you're telling us that you've met Abraham, our father? He says, yep, Abraham saw my day and he, he he was glad. I am the resurrection and the life. The happiest news I can bring to you is that Jesus is your resurrection and your life. My mom, when she was in her early 60s, long gone from us from her early 50s with Alzheimer's, 
went into the presence of Jesus where her mind was clear, and I know I will see her again. My dad now is in a nursing home with dementia, and he who looked after her for 10 or 15 years of her life is afflicted with the same thing, and it is not fair. Except the day will come when Jesus will return, and maybe my mom will come with him, and my dad will be raised, and we will all be with the Lord. And Paul says, you should comfort one another with these words. And not only comfort one another with these words, but the word comfort, the verb, is to challenge one another, is to get alongside one another. So Jesus wants us to be disturbed positively by two things, our mortality and his return, because they would change everything. They will change everything to the extent that they get a hold of my heart and my head. So I want to invite you to just begin your days with the question, if I were to die today, it's a little morbid, so you might, you know, append, and I'm probably not going to, but if I were, what would I do differently this day? Or if Jesus were to return today, what difference would that make in the way I'm spending this day? What are the things that I'm doing that are just, they're not even bad things, they're just sort of good for nothing. They're just kind of useless things, things that are frittering away my time and things that are fun, things that are interesting, but things that aren't really totally strategic as a follower of Jesus. Jesus tells these stories and he tells them in a sober tone. He says, that watch person, those wise virgins or attendants, those people who didn't bury the talent, those people who, those people are to be commended because they were watchful, because they took responsibility not only for their own mortality, but the fact that when mortality comes to visit, so does the accounting of what you've done with your life. And Paul says that we're going to get to be with Jesus and there's going to be an assessment of how we've lived our lives. Nobody's eternity is at stake. It's not as though you get up there and you hope that the piles, you know, the good is a little higher than the bad, and you go, Phew, almost didn't make it there. That's not what th this is about. Jesus is going to look at the lives we've lived, and he's going to see what we've done that is good and what we've done that's good for nothing. So that's gold, silver, precious stones, and then the wood hand stubble. The wood hand stubble is not sin, it's not evil, it's just stuff that didn't matter. Because our eternity is not at stake. Our reward is, our affirmation is, the joy of the master is, who looks at the pile and says, wow, there's a lot left there. Good for you. And that other stuff, it's a shame you really didn't get a hold of that because it didn't matter very much in the face of this other stuff. Readiness, watchfulness, it's imperative. It would change everything along with understanding that this night my soul might be required of me. Therefore, everything should be sorted in, in that scheme. Great stories, blunt stories. Um, stories that I think just get in our face and say, so, what are you going to do? That get in my face as I prepare this and think, you know, people want to listen to this on Canada Day, you know, being rag on. Well, I do. And they're the stories that have been recorded for us that Jesus wanted us to know. And so I think he wants to ask you tonight, are you a faithful watchman? Have you got your shirt on? Are you still awake? 
because he's coming back. Are you excited that he's coming back? The older I get, the more excited I am. The younger I was, it wasn't that excited. It's like, come on, let me get married first. But you know what? This world is in a sorry shape. And it's just hard to know how it gets fixed. It is broken. But there's someone coming who will restore all things, who will establish God's kingdom of righteousness forever and ever and ever. And what we do with our lives pays forward into that kingdom. There's a continuity between the way I live my life and how I live my eternity in the new creation. You might be mayor of Milton in the new creation, although I think our mayor will probably still be mayor <laughs> by then. But there we go. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the, the delight of Jesus' stories, the ways that they poke into our lives and they make simple and clear to us what you are inviting us into as followers of your son. So we pray that you will change everything. We thank you for your grace and your gentleness by which you do work in our lives. But Father, we pray that you will show us that we will die and show us that we are called to be ready, to be faithful, to be watchful um, in the event that we are even spared death in favor of welcoming the King of Kings who comes back. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will come back, that the trumpet will sound, and uh, help us to be profitably engaged when that takes place. We pray in your own name. Amen.